Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. I want to read to you today from Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 12 uh, through verse 17. It says this, and I'll be reading from the NIV. It'll be up on the screens, or you can click there as well, uh, whatever is most convenient. It says this. Uh, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, for the people of Israel, uh, the exodus out of Egypt was a key event in their history. Uh, Perhaps you remember the the biblical story of the Exodus. It's found in the book of Exodus in your Bibles. Uh, But in this powerful story, the Egyptian Pharaoh had enslaved the Hebrew people, but then God raised up Moses to lead the people up out of slavery and toward the promise of a new land. Now, when we think about the Exodus and all of the Uh, ins and outs of that story, I want you to frame it in this way. So I want you to hear this again. The Exodus story is about being led out of slavery and toward a promise. Out of slavery and toward a promise. And in fact, this story shaped the imaginations of the Israelite people and informed their view of God for generations. And so in the Exodus, what they found was God who is faithful, one who hears their cries. And so hundreds of years after the event took place, Israelite children grew up hearing about the God who had led them out of slavery and toward the promise of new land. And so central was this story to the life of Israel that New Testament writers actually draw on the imagery and the imagination of the Exodus quite often in order to draw parallels between the freedom that came through the Exodus and the freedom and the salvation that we have in Christ. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage as well. I don't know if you caught it or if you uh, happened to notice, but look at the similarities between the language and the imagery and the imagination of our passage in Romans this morning to the Exodus passage in the Old Testament. Look at these similarities. They were led by by a cloud by day and a fire by night, but now the new people of God who are in Christ are led by the Spirit of God. They, their leading was not back to slavery in Egypt, just as ours is not slavery, back into sin. And when I say sin, I want you to hear a capital S. 
okay? Because remember in Romans, there are sins, that's the individual actions that are not in line with God's will for our lives, that's sins, but in Romans, there's also sin as an entity or as a power, the engine that tends to drive us toward sinful action. And what the promise of Romans is, and the good news of the gospel, is that we've been set free from the power of capital S, sin in our lives. There we go. I was hoping for an amen, so I had a dramatic pause, right? And you did not let me down, so thank you so much, right? The, the good news of the gospel is that we are set free. Not, we're not just forgiven for the individual sins, but we are set free from the power of sin in our lives. This is the good news. And so for them, it was we are not leading you out, or we are not leading you back into slavery to Egypt. For us, we are not being led back into the power of sin. And for them, the leading is toward the promise. For us, for them, it was a promise of new land. But for us, we are, lead, we are led toward of the promise of a new kind of relationship with God. One in which... We can dare to say to the creator of all, Abba, Father. And Abba is a word of intimacy. Its uh, closest translation is probably Daddy, right? And so we are led into this promise of a new relationship with God where we have the right to call God Abba. And so... I want you to notice this morning that the, that the Exodus does not just inform the Hebrew imagination, but it informs the Christian imagination as well. That when I said, hey, hundreds of years later, Israelite children are learning about the Exodus, can we now say thousands of years later, Christian children were learning about the Exodus? <laughs> this is not just part of their story, it's part of our story as well. Because the New Testament writers saw the themes and the way that this freedom from slavery and movement toward a promise can inform imagination. And they said, now this is what's true in Christ, these very same themes, these very same realities. And so it isn't just their story, it's part of our story as well. But we also have been set free and led toward a promise, a promise of new relationship into adoption as sons or into sonship. Now, many translations will rightly, in, will rightly and correctly make this gender-inclusive language by saying you've been adopted as children of God or you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. I applaud these translations for making this important and necessary move to allow the mess, this, this good news message to fully resonate with everyone. But I wanted to read a translation that sticks with the masculine and idea of sonship this morning. And the reason is this. Because sonship carries more weight than just gender. 
In fact, I would argue that Paul is not actually talking about gender at all, but is rather picking up on a biblical image that he's carrying on, okay? So let's take a theological deep dive. So check your oxygen tanks. Make sure you got lots of oxygen because we're going to go down deep before we come up for air again. Are you with me? Okay, so here it goes. Paul is not talking about gender, but he's using a biblical image that's meant to communicate something very specific. And that is that sonship is an image throughout the scriptures that means the one who bears the image of God and is a representative ruler meant to carry out God's rule on the earth. I'll say it again. Sonship is this biblical image to mean the one who bears the image of God and is a representative ruler. In other words, meant to carry out uh, the rule of God on the earth. And so, what we see in Genesis is that Adam, and let's just be accurate here, Adam, which is a Hebrew word not for a proper first name that's popular in our own culture, but is a Hebrew word meaning humanity. So, Adam is called the Son of God. And so Adam here in the creation story is a representative of all humanity. In other words, what we get at the very first, uh, in the first few chapters of the scripture is that humanity is given this kind of crown, this role, this vocation to say now all of humanity, Adam, you are to carry out the You are to bear God's image in the world and then be representative rulers of God on the earth, to carry out the rule of God, to be stewards over creation, and to carry out God's rule in relationship with one another. This is what we get in Genesis, absolutely foundational. And so Adam is called the son of God. Now later on, Israel, as a nation, the nation of Israel is called God's firstborn. And so as the world fell into sin, Israel was separated out, called to be a light to the nations, the one who would be a nation who bore God's image in the world, who carried out God's rule in the world. They were to be a nation of people so that when the rest of the earth looked upon them, they would say, oh, right, that's what God, the creator, is like. Are you with me? Eventually, though, the king of Israel in the Psalms, is then referred to as, guess what, the Son of God. So this idea of sonship is very, kind of all the way through Scripture and very, very critical to our understanding of this passage. But I want you to notice how the Son of God and the image of the Son of God keeps getting more specific. Did you notice that, right? First, it was all of humanity. Then it was a nation, that by the time we get to the Psalms, it's the ruler over that nation. Each time, however, what we find out in the scriptures is that the representative, the son of God, the one who bears the image of sonship, right? The one who has the title of sonship, the representative fails in their vocation to fully bear God's image in the world and carry out God's rule. Okay? How are we doing? Our oxygen tanks okay? Okay? All right. Until, I bet you know where I'm headed here, until Jesus, who is called by the Apostle Paul 
the second Adam. Right? Until Jesus, who is the representative Israelite, until Jesus, who is king over all of the nations and who is the very radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, he then comes and fulfills this vocation. Jesus Christ perfectly bears the image of God in the world and carries out the rule of God as well. And so this is the good news of Paul's announcement in this passage. Jesus is the true Son of God in whom y'all have been made children of God. Amen. I'll say it again because I was hoping for a little more excitement. Okay, so I'll say it again. This is the good news announcement that Paul has in this passage. Jesus is the true Son of God in whom we are made the children of God. Amen. Now, this, of course, has all sorts of implications for us. One is to simply say God's disposition toward you is one of love, grace, and forgiveness. Amen. This fact of being children of God, where we can have the right to call God Abba and use this term of intimacy, fights against the cultural idea that has been around for thousands of years that the gods are against us. Or in this case, God is against me, right? And this idea has been around forever and ever and ever, and yet this passage carries with it this kind of intimacy, this kind of closeness where we have been set free from the slavery of sin into a promise of relationship with God, where God's disposition toward us is only that of love. So I don't know where you're at today and how you perceive or how you conceptualize God but I think there's good news in this passage to help unravel some of these things where God is just angry at me. God is waiting to catch me doing something wrong. No, God is waiting with open arms that you by faith might be able to say, Abba, Father. I think that's a really important key part to this passage, this kind of level of intimacy that it carries. But there's one more sort of implication that I want to explore today that comes along with this wonderful truth. And that is this, that as children of God through faith in Jesus, we are brought back into our vocation as sons and daughters of God. Do you remember in the Genesis passage that we just talked about Adam, all of humanity, is invited into and called into this sonship, this idea of bearing God's image, this idea of vocation in the world, being a representative ruler. But then humanity failed, and so it was the nation, and the nation failed, so it was the king of the nation, and the king failed, and every representative failed in their vocation. Well, what happens by faith is that we are invited back into our vocation as sons and daughters of God. This time, though, with the Spirit of God to help empower us, lead us, and guide us. Amen. 
that we are invited, we are called to live as God's image bearers in the world and called to carry out God's rule in the world. Right? And what is church supposed to be? A place that you go to sing songs on Sunday morning? Not primarily. (laughs) A place that you go to gather with people who are exactly like you, who have all the same views? Not really. Church is to be this new community of people who come from all different backgrounds and variety of, of perspectives who gather together and say, by faith I have become a son or a daughter of God and now I am seeking to live out God's rule in the world and seeking to bear God's image the best that I can. And then the church then collectively is to sort of serve as the same function that the nation of Israel, where the people outside or the people would look and begin to say, what are they doing forgiving each other like that? What are they doing living out God's love like that? They they should know that's not how the world works, right? This new community that God is building in order to bear God's image in the world and to be representative rulers. Now, this, of course, begs the question, what does the rule of God look like? Isn't that the task? Isn't that the work of discernment? I mean, isn't that the, that's the whole thing, right? If we are to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, representative rulers on the earth, meant to carry out God's rule, what does God's rule look like? What does it look like when God is in charge? That's a great question. That's a foundational question. I would say we need to look at the true and authentic Son of God, Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus shows us that when God's will is done on earth as in heaven, then those who are hungry are fed. Those who are sinners are forgiven and reconciled. The marginalized are given dignity. The broken are made whole. The needs of the poor are met. The cries of the oppressed are heard. On and on and on it goes. And so Jesus, the true Son of God, the one who has fulfilled the vocation of sonship, announces and enacts God's rule in the world. So if we want to know what that looks like in our own world, we must seek to understand Jesus in his world. And then we'll begin to see clearly. Quick caveat here. This is a lifelong endeavor. It isn't something that just comes in a moment. It isn't something you can just figure out and wash your hands of it. This is a lifelong endeavor of understanding who Jesus was in his own world so that we might understand God's rule in our world. Are you with me? Right? This is why good theology matters. This is why when we read the scriptures, we can't take all of our kind of own mindsets or presuppositions and then just read them into an ancient text. We got to first enter the text, understand this world, and then seek to understand how, what are the similarities in our own context, right? This, by the way, is the work that I try to do uh, as a preacher. 
sometimes in teaches or, or in classes that I teach. Um, in fact, I just got done teaching a preaching class, and I said to the class, "The role of the preacher is not to make the word of God relevant. It is to demonstrate the ways in which the word of God is already relevant." You can steal that if you want, right? That has hashtag written all over it, okay? So I'm just like, <laughs> like hashtag is now like truth bombs, you know? It's like if it's hashtagable. So like what I'm saying though is like we have to enter into this world, understand Jesus in his own context so that we might then understand what the rule of God looks like in our own world, amen. Okay, so what this means then and we're about to get real, okay? But what this means is that the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes our lens for discerning good and bad and discerning what the work of the Spirit looks like in the world. One lens, the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's our lens which is the same to say, to put a little finer point on it, that means that we don't listen primarily to news pundits. That means we don't hold most dear to values of a party. And we don't grasp on to keep systems just because they might benefit us. But we look and we ask with humility and kindness and generosity, and the willingness to change if we need to, we look and we ask, are the outcasts brought into community? Do those in need have their needs met? Are sinners reconciled and forgiven? Are the oppressed listened to? And the overarching question that we got close to in the 90s with what would Jesus do? <laughs> but maybe the overarching question is, does this look like Jesus? Does this look like Jesus? These are challenging words for me this morning. And these are challenging words, I think, for all of us if we will really hear them. Because thanks be to God, by faith you have been made into a child of God. There is an intimacy and a connection available to God for you, available for you to God. And yet, being a child of God comes with a vocation, an opportunity, a responsibility. And so I would encourage you to go from this place into your workplaces and your neighborhoods and your circles of influence and begin the process of discernment of how might I best live into and live out that vocation that I have as a child of God. Amen? Amen. Let me say a word of prayer for us, and then I'll lead us to the table. Heavenly Father, 
This is a challenging word this morning. A word that, that really cuts right to our everyday lives. Uh, that helps to inform the decisions that we make. Not just in how we interact with others, but maybe it helps inform the decisions that we make about what we post or what we share on social media. God, it challenges our allegiance, and Lord, we confess today that it's so easy uh, to avoid the hard work of discernment and go right to a party one way or the other, to go to news pundits, to go to social media feeds that seem to be really an echo chamber of what we might already think. And so, God, today, as we gaze upon the beauty of your Son, our Redeemer, Jesus, the true Son of God who lived out sonship and this calling to bear your image, and to be your ruler, your representative ruler in the world, God, I pray that you would help us to see and to understand Jesus in the ancient world so that we might begin to make connections to our own. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us in this process. That we have not been left alone, but that you have sent a helper for us. And so, God, through the leading of your Holy Spirit, guide us, we pray. Not just personally, we certainly want that and we need that. We need that personal guidance of our everyday lives, our personal lives. But we also, Lord, need your guidance for the church, the capital C church, for this church. Of what the collective body of Christ might look like in our vocation in the world. So help us, Lord. Give us insights, give us discernment, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.